Let's open our Bibles to the letter of Jude, and I want to read to you verses 12 and 13. They are together, though we will not be able to study all of the aspects of these two verses, but I want you to see them together. Jude says concerning the apostates, he says, these are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feasts when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves, clouds without water, carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted. Wild waves of the sea, casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. I recently did an online search to find out what are some of the common dangers that people are concerned about these days. And some of the more familiar dangers that showed up in my Google search were one was the dangers of smoking. Another was the dangers of global warming. Then there were Internet dangers, pregnancy dangers, the dangers of drinking raw milk. You want to keep that in mind. And then the dangers of radiation from cell phones and on and on. They went. Actually, there are literally pages and pages and pages of listings for all sorts of dangers. Some, frankly, a little bizarre, but nonetheless listed as a type of danger. However, it was curious to me that in all those pages, and I I didn't look up every page, I looked up about 10 pages, but in all of those pages, not one time did I find the mention uh, of a most serious danger, and that is the danger of apostates, the danger of those who have departed and fallen away from believing the doctrines of biblical Christianity, where they once said they embraced them and now they reject them. That is an apostate. Now, apostates have been the focus of our studies recently because that's really what Jude's letter is about. That's the heart of his letter. As you'll recall, he wrote this letter to either one church or perhaps several churches. We're not sure. Exhorting them, he said in verse three, to contend for the faith. Why? Because apostates, he tells us in verse four, had infiltrated these churches and were distorting and denying essential biblical doctrines among the Christians. So the purpose of of Jude in writing his letter is not only to uh, warn his readers to contend for the faith, which is really the purpose, the primary purpose of the letter, but also to put them on notice that they are in danger. They are in danger because these apostates have an agenda. They have a goal and their goal is to undermine their faith and win them over to their errors. And folks, that danger is still with us today. This is not a uh, a relic of time. This is not a first century problem. It is a relevant problem today. There are apostates in churches, in denominations, in seminaries, in institutions of higher learning who in the name of Christianity are teaching what the Apostle Paul told Timothy were doctrines of demons. And the sad thing is, is that many of these churches and denominations and seminaries, institutions of higher learning actually started out being biblically based. That's their heritage. That's their history. That's their background. But they have since departed from the faith and they now reject the very doctrines that they once said that they embraced and believed. 
Over a hundred years ago, the English preacher Charles Spurgeon warned the Baptist Union that, that he was actually a part of. Spurgeon was a Baptist. He was in the Baptist Union of Great Britain. He warned them that they were on what he called a downgrade, meaning the downslide in turning away from the Bible and embracing liberal doctrines and modernistic views. That was happening in England at the time of Spurgeon over a hundred years ago. But instead, Instead of being heralded as a champion of the faith, sadly, Spurgeon was severely criticized by many of his ministerial colleagues for his stand. It is a sad thing. Spurgeon is a champion to many of us, but in history, Spurgeon died a broken man. Spurgeon died in his 50s, and many believe that one of the reasons was that he was just so brokenhearted over what he went through and the rejection of uh, the Baptist, and not only rejecting him, but rejecting the truth. He also had a number of health issues that contributed to his demise. But in a recent article I read, published by the Master's College, there was a note about Spurgeon and his faithfulness to the Scriptures. And I want to read some of this article to you, because I, I think it gives us some helpful insight into the nature of apostasy and the danger of apostates and and the danger that they really are to the church. Here's what this article said. More than a century ago, Charles Spurgeon, the renowned British preacher and pastor of the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, had been condemned for being so rigid and inflexible that he still believed and taught what the apostles had originally preached and recorded in Scripture almost two millennia before. Instead of being alarmed and hurt by his critics, Spurgeon considered this one of the greatest compliments ever bestowed upon him, for he had been faithful even by the admission of his enemies to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. So so he, he was encouraged that unbelievers were annoyed at him for this, but believers was, that was another battle. And the article goes on to say, over the 300 years of American history, hundreds of colleges and universities established by a wide range of churches and religious organizations have provided a Christian college-level education with a strong emphasis on biblical truth. However, the theological drift and broadening of purpose by these colleges and universities over time has been well documented. It is so prevalent as to be considered virtually universal and inevitable. Now, did you get that? Did you get that last part? The theological drift, they said, and broadening of colleges once considered biblical is so prevalent that it is considered, according to this article, universal and Inevitable. And the reason that it is so prevalent is because apostates have led these institutions away from biblical Christianity. That's why the churches of Spurgeon's day in England, as well as colleges and universities in America in our day, have abandoned the faith, many of them, because apostates came into these institutions and began cutting away at the foundation of the word of God and leading these institutions to reject the doctrines of the Bible. See, men and women who have departed from the faith themselves then have lured and enticed others to follow their treacherous abandonment of the scriptures. 
So I want you to understand, never underestimate how dangerous apostates are to Christians and Christian organizations. They target people just like us. Now, tonight, we're going to see just how dangerous apostates really are and the threat that they pose to us by examining the verses that I I read a few moments ago to you, Jude, verses 12 and 13. And the way Jude does this, watch this, this is fascinating. In these two verses, he gives us some very vivid pictures of apostates, all taken from the world of nature. This is some of the most graphic and lively language you will find in the Bible. He uses, as I said, extremely eloquent words, vivid language. And he does this in communicating why apostates are so dangerous to the church. He does this by describing their ungodly character, watch this, in word pictures that he draws from nature. There are five of these natural word pictures in these verses. We're going to look at two of them tonight. He describes them, though. Let me lay this all out for you. We'll look at two tonight, Lord willing, three next week. He describes them, number one, as hidden reefs. Number two, he says they are clouds without water. Number three, he calls them autumn trees without fruit. Four, he calls them wild waves of the sea. And five, he says they are like wandering stars. So from the sky... The land, the sea, Jude gives us a glimpse into the character of these apostates and the dangers they pose for us because of their ungodly character. None of what he has to say is complimentary. It's all about their ungodly character. So tonight we're going to look at two of these word pictures. As I said, next week, Lord willing, we'll look at the remaining three. The first word picture that Jude gives us from the world of nature is that apostates, he says, are like hidden reefs. Verse 12. These are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feasts when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves. Now, Jude begins by describing these men as hidden reefs. What is a hidden reef? A hidden reef is a large rock in the water that's close to the surface, but hidden from the the sight of a ship or a boat. And if that ship hits it, that ship will be wrecked and destroy. That's what a hidden reef is, and that's what it does. So Jude says that the apostates are like these reefs, like these rocks in the water, because if you run into them, they can shipwreck the faith of believers. Very serious. Now, how were they wrecking the faith of the believers that, that Jude was addressing? Well, let's read on. He says, these are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feast when they feast with you without fear, he says, caring for themselves. Jude explains that these apostates are dangerous because he said they actively participate in the love feasts that were taking place in the church. Now, a love feast, sometimes known as an agape feast, was a church-wide meal that was served in connection with the Lord's Supper. It went together. They would have the Lord's Supper and then the feast or vice versa. It was something like a church potluck dinner, but it was also the Lord's Supper included. And everybody in the church would bring some food and and they would share. That's what a love feast was. Now, the reason that the early church had these love feasts and why they were so significant wasn't simply to enjoy Christian fellowship. That was certainly part of it. But these feasts were a means by which wealthier believers could provide a meal 
for poorer believers, especially those who were slaves in the Roman Empire and had absolutely nothing of their own. So the Lord's Supper and the love feast became a special opportunity for Christians to regularly come together. Perhaps they did this every Sunday and share their food, their love for Christ and their love for one another. For the slaves, this may have been the best meal that they would have the whole week. So it was very significant. However, in time, certain people began to abuse the Lord's Supper and the love feast. We know this, this was a, um, an issue in the early church because Paul addresses this problem at Corinth. So let me have you turn to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I'll just touch on this, but this is really what he's talking about. This is the problem at Corinth, and I suspect that what Jude is telling us, and we'll see Peter also tells us something about the distortion, the corruption of the love feast, is exactly what was going on in, at the Corinthian assembly. Notice, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting at verse 17, we read this. But in giving this instruction, Paul says, I do not praise you because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. Could you imagine being told that? It would be better off if you stayed at home, Paul said, than coming together. He said, your coming together is actually worse than if you didn't come together. What a, what a horrible thing, but that was the... That was reality. That was the truth. He says, and he explains, for in the first place, when you come together in the church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part, I believe it. Let's jump down to verse 20. Therefore, when you meet together, this is what he's talking about, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. He's saying you may think you have come to have the Lord's Supper, but you're not really participating in the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first. And each one is hungry and another is drunk. He says, what? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God? And shame those who have nothing. What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I will not praise you. Now, notice if you look also at verses 33 and 34. Paul says, so then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that you will not come together for judgment. We can we can just stop at that point. This is a serious thing. What Paul is is talking about is that these people came together. But instead of waiting for one another, the wealthier folks got there, had their food. And instead of waiting for the poor to come and the slaves to come, they started eating. And Paul goes on to say they got drunk as well. That's why they did not participate in the Lord's Supper. It it really, as we'll see tonight, it actually became sort of a drunken orgy. Now, let me have you you turn to 2 Peter chapter 2, because Peter gives us some insight as to what was really going on, I think, with Jude's readers, certainly in 2 Peter with his readers, as well as what was going on at the Corinthian assembly. I think Peter is the commentary, the inspired commentary, to help us understand Jude's situation or the situation of his readers. Chapter 2, notice verse 13. We'll start the second sentence. He says, They count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. Now, Peter is talking about also apostate false teachers. They counted a pleasure to revel in the daytime. You'll see that this is, this is a part of the Lord's Supper. 
As Peter continues in his letter to reveal the true character of false teachers, he says something that, that ought to startle us. This, this actually, you should not just read that and go, oh, that's interesting. It's, it's more than interesting. It's startling. He states that these men were bothering these Christians, these false teachers were bothering his readers and were so bold in their evil ways that they actually carried them out in broad daylight. That's exactly what he means. Look at it again. They counted a pleasure to revel in the daytime. Now, what exactly were they doing? Well, the Greek word that Peter uses for pleasure is the word from which we get our English word hedonist. And a a hedonist is an individual who lives only for pleasure, a hedonist. These false teachers, the thought here, were pleasure seekers, hedonists, who lived a lifestyle of self-indulgence in broad daylight. For everyone to see. Now, specifically what they did, Peter doesn't say. He he does not tell us specifically at this point what they do. I think he gives us some insight after, but he doesn't say exactly at this point. He just says that they were pleasure seekers. Now, based on what we know of the culture of Peter's day and our own culture and our own hedonistic ways, we would certainly have to include in their pleasure-seeking immorality and drunkenness. And the word that's translated uh, reveling or carousing uh, also carries with it the thought of luxury, softness, extravagance, and those are the things that give people pleasure. So, So Peter is painting a picture of a false teacher as an individual who lives to feel Good and who behaves in a way that ordinarily is reserved for the nighttime. And I say this because notice that Peter, what he says, he says they counted a pleasure to revel in the daytime as if that's an unusual thing. It is unusual. And it's not that Peter is suggesting that carousing at nighttime is acceptable. It's just the fact that immorality and drunkenness are usually committed under the cover of darkness. That's that's usually the case. Why? So it could be hidden from the sight of others. That's why Jesus said in John 3:19 that men love darkness rather than light for their deeds, he said, were evil. They didn't, they didn't want people seeing them. Men tend to hide their sin under the cover of darkness. But these false teachers did what they did in broad daylight for everyone to see. And even though in Roman society, the Roman society of Peter's day, which was extremely wicked and degenerate, um, daylight behavior like this or behavior like this was normally frowned upon if it was committed in the daylight. But the false teachers of Peter's day, we're told by Peter, carried out immoral behavior Drunken revelry during the daytime. Why? Because these folks lived only for pleasure. That's all. And they thought this behavior would make them happy. That's what a hedonist does. And to make matters worse, notice as we read on that these false teachers behaved this way in front of believers. It wasn't just that they behaved this way out in public. They behaved this way with other Christians and in front of them. Notice he goes on to say they are stains, he writes, and blemishes reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you. So this was involved, they involved the church. Peter was so disgusted by what these men did that he actually called them stains and blemishes in the sense that they defiled the fellowship of true believers. Something that was pure, something that was intended to be pure, intended to be holy, they defiled. See, these false teachers, they were, they were apostates. They were not real Christians but their presence defiled 
real Christians, defiled what was pure and holy. And what Peter seems to be referring to is that these false teachers actually carried on their shameful behavior in participating in the Lord's Supper. That's why I want you to see this, because I think this is exactly what Jude is talking about. Now, let me explain. Notice the last phrase of verse 13. He says, as they carouse with you. That word carouse literally should be translated as they feast with you, as they feast with you. In other words, these false teachers were eating meals together with believers. And most likely what Peter is referring to is the Lord's Supper and the love feast, because that's the only time believers would really come together for this common meal. So that appears to be what Peter is talking about precisely what Jude was talking about. False teachers were getting drunk at the Lord's Supper, and instead of it being a precious time of fellowship, it became a drunken orgy. That's why Peter is so disgusted and calls these men stains and blemishes because they completely defile the purity of the Lord's Supper and the fellowship of the saints. And that appears to be precisely what Jude is talking about in in his letter. Now, keep your place in 2 Peter, but let's go back to, to Jude. Jude says, these are the men who are hidden reefs, something very dangerous, in your love feasts. When they feast with you, notice, without fear, they do this boldly, brazenly, caring, he says, for themselves. Now, notice that Jude states that they care for themselves. The verb care is related to the word pastor or shepherd. That's what a pastor is. In other words, false teachers, he's saying, shepherd only themselves. They care only about themselves. They feed only themselves. They're only concerned about their own needs being met. They participate in the church because they have another agenda, and that is to fulfill their own desires. That's exactly what an apostate does. They are pleasure seekers, and whatever gives them pleasure, whether it be drunkenness or sensual pleasure, they are going to seek it. Now, if you go back to Second Peter, let me show you something else. Notice, Peter goes on in verse 14, right after telling us about the behavior of these men as they carouse in the love feast, he says in verse 14, they have eyes full of adultery. Now, that's very interesting. Peter is connecting this. I don't think this is separate. It's connected. In the original language, what Peter used is much vivid than our translation. What Peter literally wrote was that they have eyes full of an adulteress. Eyes full of an adulteress. And what he means by this is that these false teachers were so consumed, these men were so consumed with lust, that every woman they saw they looked upon as a potential adulteress to commit fornication with. I think that is precisely what Peter means. Peter's point is that in addition to being drunk at the Lord's Supper, these men were continually on the lookout for women to commit adultery with. He's talking about Christian women now. And that's why Peter goes on to say enticing unstable souls. These wicked pleasure-seeking men made it their goal to seduce spiritually unstable Women, women who were easy targets because they really weren't spiritually mature and they were very vulnerable to the seductive moves of these religious leaders, probably very impressed with them because these were these were some of the leaders of 
the church. Now, I think that just gives us some insight into what Jude is talking about. As you go back to, to Jude, we'll, we'll continue. I think you can see from this why apostates are so dangerous to Christians. Not only do they lead people away from the truths of Scripture, but while pretending to be believers, they carry on shameful deeds and promote immorality amongst God's people. See, apostates, folks, participate in the life of the church. And they are not always easy to spot, but like reefs that are hidden, their desires are very, very clear. Their desire is to gain pleasure for themselves. And in the process, the tragedy is they take down true Christians with them. So be very careful. Be very careful that you are alert to spotting apostates. They are the ones, Jude says, who care only for themselves and they have no interest in Christ's people, no interest in his glory, no interest in his honor. They're interested only in themselves. So Jude tells us that apostates are like hidden reefs that can shipwreck your faith if you run into them. So don't run into them. Don't watch them on television. Don't listen to them on the radio. Don't read their books. Jude tells us then that they are like hidden reefs. The second word picture Jude gives us from the world of nature is that apostates, he says, are like clouds without water. Verse 12 goes on to say clouds without water. And then he adds to this carried along by winds. Now, Jude says that these apostates are like waterless clouds blown along by the wind. What does he mean by this? Well, essentially, he means that that like clouds that look very promising, you need rain, you see clouds floating through the sky, the wind's taking them, it looks like you're going to get rain, it's promising, but they are empty. They're empty. They contain no moisture, no water, so apostates are unable to deliver what they promise. They look good, they sound good, They sound eloquent. They tell you things that make you very excited because they have all style, but no substance. They're unable to deliver what they promise. You see, clouds in the Middle East look very promising to farmers in great need of rain for their crops. But when these waterless clouds don't drop any rain, these farmers are left extremely disappointed. Jude tells us that's the way apostates are. That's the way they are. They make bold promises to people in the church, claiming to have answers and solutions for their problems, but they have no real answers. Nothing. And ultimately, they can't help anybody with their problems, and they leave people frustrated and disappointed. Proverbs 25, verse 14, actually speaks about this very thing. Listen to this. Like clouds and wind without rain is a man who boasts of his gifts falsely. Let me read that again. Like clouds and wind without rain, same imagery that Jude gives, is a man who boasts of his gifts falsely. That's exactly what Jude says apostates do. Apostates boast about what great gifts they have to offer people, probably in, in terms of their teaching uh, content. But they have actually nothing of any substance to offer. Nothing. Their words are like rainless clouds, empty and disappointing. Warren Wearsby in his little book on Jude, I think, captures beautifully what Jude is conveying when he says, and I quote, 
Apostates look like men who can give spiritual help. And they boast of their abilities, but they are unable to produce. Unable to produce. So listen, be very careful. Be very careful about men who are eloquent in their speaking abilities, but they have nothing of substance to offer you. These men may come across as very enlightened and highly educated, and their vocabulary may be very impressive, but they can't help your spiritual life at all. Absolutely not at all, because they don't give you the word of God. Their words won't benefit your soul. In fact, their teaching will only lead you astray from the truths of Scripture. That appears to be why Jude mentions that these men are, notice he says, they are carried along by winds. In other words, these men are carried off course from the word of God. And anyone who follows their teaching will be led astray with them. Now, having said this, I want to just share my heart with you because I am amazed at how many Christians are naive about public speakers. And they are impressed with the public speaking abilities of men who have absolutely nothing to offer them spiritually, but they sound good. Full of sound and fury, as Shakespeare said, signifying nothing, nothing. There are times in my ministry I've heard people tell me that this one is such a wonderful speaker. You ought to have this one speak. You ought to have this one speak. And mostly what it comes down to, or many times what it comes down to, is style. Style. There are many Christians who evaluate a speaker in church, even in our church, based on his style and not the content of his message. And I want you to know, even the Apostle Paul faced this ridiculous criticism, and it is a ridiculous criticism. Let me show you. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, now the whole background of 2 Corinthians that false teachers, once again, had come into the church, false apostles, and they said, we're the real apostles. Paul is not. And there were actually some believers, some people in the Corinthian church who believed them. Silly. Dangerous. Notice this. Notice what Paul had to put up with. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 10. For Paul says, for they say, these False apostles. His letters, meaning Paul's letters, are weighty and strong. They said, hey, he he writes really well. He's a good writer. His letters are powerful, but his personal presence is unimpressive. They're saying he is really not good looking at all. That's what they're saying. His personal presence is unimpressive. And notice this, and his speech contemptible. Now, I don't think that Paul was a bad speaker. I just think that compared to these professional pulpiteers and orators, he came across less than than they did. These men were known for their eloquence. These were the the philosophers of that day. They actually, I understand from studying this, they would actually practice um, speaking with marbles in their mouth. So they would they would make sure their diction is good. Their pronunciation is good. Well, compared to them, Paul didn't stand a chance. But why? What they were saying is he's not impressive like us. And how would God ever call someone to be a real apostle if he doesn't look good and and his, his speech isn't up to par like us? So false teachers accused Paul of being not a valid apostle because they said he was a poor public speaker. And some, and this is the amazing thing, don't follow the footsteps of the Corinthians. They actually believe this. Why? Because they were more concerned about style than about substance. How could anybody... How could anybody miss that Paul was an apostle? 
How could anybody evaluate Paul based on his style rather than his content? But they did that, and people do it today. Notice in the next chapter what Paul said about this. Chapter 11, verse 6. He said, But even if I am unskilled in speech, yet I am not so in knowledge. In fact, in every way we have made this evident to you in all things. Paul said, maybe I'm not as eloquent as these men, but you've listened to my content. You know what I have to say is the truth. And folks, that's how you evaluate a speaker. Not on his, his style, not on his eloquence, but on his content. The issue is the content of a man's message, not eloquence or style is he presenting the word of god so folks do not be deceived by the appearance of renowned public speakers and well-known authors who dress well and come across well and have great body language they're active in some type of religious organization that calls itself a christian ministry but it is not do not be impressed with that jude says they are waterless clouds promising to enrich your life by their teaching but they can't help you at all no matter how eloquent they are no matter how rich a vocabulary they have they will only lead you astray you see the only teaching that will help you to grow in christ is the teaching of the word of god that's the only thing it is totally sufficient to enable you to first come to faith in christ and then help you to grow in Christ-like godliness. And let me show you this as we bring this to a close. Second Peter chapter 1. This is why we believe at Lakeside that the Word of God is sufficient, is absolutely sufficient to help us to grow spiritually, that you do not need psychiatrists and psychologists and all these other uh, doctors of renowned thinking. I'm not talking about medical doctors. I'm talking about behavior issues. You have the Word of God. Look at 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Seeing that his divine power has granted to us, notice this, everything pertaining to life and godliness. Everything. For life and godliness has already been given to us through the true knowledge of him. And notice it is through the knowledge. It is the word of God who called us by his own glory and excellence. And, and he clarifies this in verse 4. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. It is the word of God and the promises of scripture that have been given to us to help us to grow, not the eloquence of renowned speakers. So make sure, first of all, that you know Christ, that you have trusted him to be your Lord, your Savior. Listen to what Marilyn said tonight. Don't think that some childhood, perhaps uh, words of a prayer that you said, which you didn't understand true repentance and true faith. Don't base salvation on that. Make sure that you have really turned from your sin, that you're really trusting the Savior. And then as you have assurance of your salvation, take in the word of God and stay away from apostate teachers and pastors because they will shipwreck your faith by luring you into wicked behavior and they will lead you away from the truth with useless teaching. Let's bow for prayer. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you... 2,000 years ago, more now, inspired Jude to write this precious little letter. And we thank you, Lord, for the uh, 
the vividness of his language that communicates to us in, in terms that we can grasp uh, how dangerous these apostates really are. And Lord, I pray that you'll help each of us to be alert to this, to be um, discerning, to not be uh, taken in and impressed by well-known speakers, uh, perhaps even those who mention the name of Jesus and will say the Bible, but they have nothing of substance to tell us. They have abandoned the absolutes of the Word of God. We pray that you will help us, Lord, to be discerning, to be wise, to not be naive. And I pray, Lord, that you will help us as a church body to always remain true to the Word of God, the doctrines of orthodoxy, but also to have a heart for you, not to simply embrace doctrinal truth without having a heart to experience doctrinal truth. So I pray, Lord, for that. I pray that you will bless Marilyn as she shared her testimony tonight and that you'll use her greatly for your kingdoms and your glory and honor. And I pray, Lord, for any here tonight who may not know you, I pray that you will open their hearts to the gospel, that they might indeed flee from the wrath to come and run to Christ for salvation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.